0: Welcome to Disinformation Wars, a project of the American Foreign Policy Council. I'm AFPC Senior Vice President Elon Berman. Disinformation Wars is a series of conversations with officials, experts, and practitioners designed to take you behind the scenes of the struggle for hearts and minds of global publics that's now taking place around the world. It's a contest being waged by Russia, China, Iran, and other actors, and the stakes could not be any higher. In 2012, the Duma, Russia's Lower House of Parliament, passed a series of amendments to existing laws in the country's criminal code. These changes, which are collectively known as the Foreign Agents Law, mandated that organizations and nonprofits which receive foreign donation and engage in what the Kremlin considers political activity, register with the Russian government. The objective, according to Russian President Vladimir Putin, is to prevent interference in Russia's internal affairs. The law officially went into effect in November of 2012. Since then, The Kremlin has used it as a weapon against a wide range of enemies. Domestic organizations, like the Anti Corruption Foundation, run by prominent Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny, have faced stiff fines, have had their offices shuttered, and have had their employees persecuted. And many have shut down as a result. Foreign groups, including the MacArthur Foundation and Transparency International, have been similarly targeted and have had their operations restricted. Over time, this has led to an exodus of foreign pro democracy groups from the Russian Federation. But Russia isn't finished. In 2017, the Kremlin extended the requirement to foreign-funded news agencies operating in Russia. Under the new restrictions, these news agencies are classified as foreign agents and are forced to disclose their funding sources. If they don't, they face stiff fines or face being barred from operating in Russia altogether. Today, the Kremlin is using this law to target a key U.S. news broadcaster, Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty, which played a critical role in bringing information to populations behind the Iron Curtain during the Soviet era, is being sued by the Kremlin in Russian court for more than $3.5 million in fines and penalties that are associated with the foreign agent law. The service is fighting back, but the Russian government appears to hold all the court. To get a better understanding of the current fight over U.S. broadcasting taking place in Russia, I decided to go straight to the source and speak with Jamie Fly. Jamie is the president and the chief executive officer of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, or RFERL, as it's known for short. It's a post that he has held with a brief interruption since July of 2019. Before that, Jamie served as a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund and co-director of the Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy. And before that, he was a counselor for foreign affairs and national security for U.S. Senator Marco Rubio. Jamie, thank you so much for joining me. Let's start at the beginning. RFERL has been credited with playing a key role in the battle of ideas against the USSR that helped win the Cold War. What was the agency doing back then? And what sorts of messages was it trying to send across and through the Iron Curtain?
1: When we started uh, broadcasting roughly 70 years ago, uh, the idea, the concept was pretty simple at the time, and it was to uh, allow people who had fled repression behind the Iron Curtain, to have access through the microphone, essentially, given that it was all radio, to their former countrymen and women to speak the truth, to you know, shine a light on the lies that were being spread by those repressive communist regimes. And so that was the model at RFERL's start. And although the transmission means has have evolved significantly over the years, moving from radio to TV, now really to pretty much every imaginable platform, but especially digital. Uh, The key concept of what RFERL does on a daily basis, to be honest, hasn't changed a lot. It's providing that access for journalists from countries that uh, do not have freedom of speech or where the freedom of the press is restricted or under pressure to provide objective news and information, essentially the truth to their fellow countrymen and women, to the audiences in the countries where those people are from. And so across all of our 27 language services right now, that essentially is still the sort of work that we're doing on a daily basis.
0: All right. So let's fast forward to today. As you said, RFE is still operating. The USSR is gone. And in fact, you guys have expanded your activities, all these different domains. Uh, Why have you done that? As you said, the mission really hasn't changed, but From your perch in Prague, what do you see as the objective of RFERL in your work currently?
1: So the objective currently is really focused on providing objective news and information in these information environments that are under significant pressure from authoritarians. And sometimes that's authoritarian governments that are currently in control of the country in question. Sometimes if you look at a country like Ukraine, for instance, or Georgia, where I actually just visited our bureau last week, uh, you have fledgling democracies that are struggling with outside foreign interference. So foreign actors uh, in those countries, primarily Russia, but we also see China playing this role. In a number of states and those foreign actors are often trying to undermine the information domain to spread conspiracy theories to spread anti-american sentiments and viewpoints and advance their broader strategic objectives and so when a broadcaster like rferl can come into that market and be a trusted source for news and information an impartial source that does not have a particular political interest, that is not tied to one individual or political party, which is a major problem in many of these uh, even democracies, if you look at their current media landscape, that can be a powerful force in a very fragmented media market that is buffeted by conspiracy theories and disinformation uh, when you do have a trusted source of news and information that the audience can turn to reliably to get information about what's going on in their country's politics, but also in topics that relate directly to uh, the audience members' lives. And so that's the service that we currently provide uh, across uh, those uh, 23 countries across Eurasia.
0: Well, that brings us to the current war on the agency that's being waged by Russia. The Kremlin has clearly focused on RFERL as a major threat to its strategic interests. Why do you think does Russia, the Russian government, Vladimir Putin in particular, uh, fear RFRL so much?
1: Well, one thing he may fear is our history, because obviously we did play a role during the Cold War, not just inside the Soviet Union, broadcasting through uh, Svoboda Radio Liberty, also to the former Warsaw Pact countries. We were cited after the collapse of communism by many of the opposition figures who later came to power as a key part of those events as an information source that led to momentous change. So that may be why Vladimir Putin to this day has a problem with uh, Radios Svoboda. But ultimately, I think what His recent policies, both relating to us, but his broader attacks on independent media and civil society in Russia, they're all about control. Vladimir Putin wants to maintain his grip on power. He wants to protect himself and uh, those in his inner circle who support his rule. And uh, he wants to ensure that any dissent is suppressed that he can dominate the information that is provided to the Russian people. And we present a challenge from that perspective because we will report the facts. We will report on all the aspects of what is going on in Russian politics and society The corruption, the misuse of authority, the attacks on civil society, uh, the failures of the Russian government to address many of the basic needs of the Russian people. And that's the sort of reporting that we provide through all of our platforms, whether it's Svoboda or traditional Russian service or current time or 24 7 Russian language uh, network. And ever since he took power, We have seen a steady increase in pressure on our ability to operate inside Russia, culminating over the last year in these efforts to force the closure of our Moscow Bureau, which has existed for 30 years, originally was set up at the invitation of President Boris Yeltsin. And I think we've reached a point where because of his own insecurities, Vladimir Putin has decided that he and his regime need complete information control. And the targeting of RFERL's presence in Russia is a key part of that effort to exert complete information control. So,
0: how about us? Um, why precisely is the US opposed to the foreign agent label that the Russian government wants to slap on RFERL? After all, to play devil's advocate, uh, it is an official US broadcaster. So, what, what's the worry here uh, from your perspective?
1: Well, the danger is in how they've applied the foreign agent uh, law. There's a foreign agent law, for instance, in the United States uh, that has been used to designate several foreign-funded outlets to impose certain requirements on those foreign-funded outlets and their U.S. operations. And it's worth noting that for many years after 2017, when the foreign agent law was passed in Russia, RFERL fully complied with that law. We registered accordingly under the law. We declared our finances and our funding mechanisms under that law. Our staff and information about them were provided to the Russian government. Um, We even put some high-level labels on our websites, um, noting that we had been designated a foreign agent by the Russian government, even though we disputed the designation. So. For many years, we have complied. The, the latest change, though, which is completely beyond what is required of foreign-funded media in the United States, has been a requirement that we do invasive labeling of all of our content produced for the Russian audience. And when I say invasive, it's labeling that we believe actually gets to to the point of interfering with our editorial decision-making about our content, especially on social media platforms and online content. When you start requiring, for instance, 15-second trailers prior to every social media video, which you cannot fast forward through a warning declaring that this is coming from a foreign agent. That is a very clear attempt to drive away a certain audience. And so when we saw that the Kremlin was trying to use the foreign agent framework to essentially decide who would be allowed to view RFERL content, we said enough is enough and uh, declared that we could not comply with this law, which is now why we're facing these repercussions. I should also just say, In the Russian context, which is obviously not a fully functioning democracy like the United States, the label foreign agent has significant negative consequences for those who have been designated as such. Uh, It harkens back to a previous era where people were declared traitors and spies. Some of the other rhetoric and the attacks on journalists, even separate from the formal Kremlin line, have kind of trended in this direction. And we've also now seen the Russian authorities use individual foreign agent designations against specific journalists, including several who work for RFERL. And that has a major uh, effect in deterring people from doing their journalism if they fear that their entire, entire livelihoods may be at risk just because they've been designated a foreign agent. That is not the case in the United States for the foreign-funded network's They're still freely able to operate. They face no restrictions on their ability to access the American audience. Their journalists do not face the sort of repercussions that our journalists and others currently face inside Russia. And so although the Russians have smartly tried to use the U.S. legal framework as an excuse for their own foreign agent designations, it's a fundamentally different construct with ultimately a very different intent. And in this case now, it's their intent to drive us and other media outlets out of the market. And when it's private media outlets that do not have the funding like we do from the US Congress, to drive them out of business, as we've now seen from several of the outlets, the private outlets that have been designated as foreign agents, several have gone under, and the remaining ones are struggling to survive because their advertising has dried up it's become difficult for them to keep their journalists on staff. And I think, again, that all gets to the broader goal of complete information control and funneling the Russian public back towards those Russian government-funded government state propaganda outlets. To your point, the Russian government's goal here is, I think, pretty apparent, as you, as you noted.
0: So I have to ask, what happens if the Kremlin is successful? What does the U.S. do generally? What does RFERL do specifically? What do you guys do next?
1: Well, in our case, this is one of the benefits of our funding structure. I know there's often a debate in the United States about public broadcasting and whether it's necessary, whether it's worth the taxpayer dollars to fund outlets like PBS or NPR. But I think it's important to note when it comes to the U.S. international broadcast networks that uh, do not serve the American people but operate overseas, we are operating in a landscape where public broadcasting Neutral, objective, independent public broadcasting usually does not exist. If it existed, we wouldn't need to be in that country. The public broadcasters where they do exist are usually co-opted, completely controlled by the government in question, are not independent. And because we are able to essentially move into those markets, including Russia as a public broadcaster, we can ride out challenges uh, like this one that we're facing right now. The biggest threat we face relates to our physical presence out of our Moscow bureau. Physical bureaus are incredibly important. RFERL has about uh, 20 of them. Uh, it helps connect us to our audiences and make sure our journalism is relevant to people there on the ground. But physical bureaus are, are, are also not always a necessity. I mean, we saw this given RFURL's success uh, during the Cold War, where we operated out of Munich. And we rarely, for the, for the uh, first several decades of the Cold War, we rarely had access to journalists on the ground. We would see, receive reports covertly from people inside the countries, but most of them were not trained journalists. Uh, it would have been too risky for us to actually send journalists inside those countries, especially now as technology advances and everyone who's carrying a cell phone can record information, report at a certain level on events going on around them, submit user-generated content, We do this, for instance, from Iran right now, where our service, our Farda service is denied access, but we can still get interviews on the street with people smuggled out of the country and shared with us. There are a lot of different ways to report in this modern era. And so we'll continue to use those tools no matter what happens to our physical presence inside Moscow. And uh, what we've made very clear is that if the Russians do force the closure of our Moscow Bureau... If anything, we're going to expand our outreach to our Russian audience, double down on our efforts to to provide objective news and information to the Russian people. And we'll continue to work not just out of that physical bureau, but with a broader network of freelance journalists that we've used for many decades, many of whom are brave, are willing to take the risks of working with us. So we have uh, contingency plans in place to make sure that we can provide relevant content to the Russian people no matter what the Kremlin throws at us. And that is our comparative advantage compared to a number of those private outlets I mentioned that are under immediate financial pressure as soon as they've lost their advertising uh, revenue because of their foreign agent designation. But we will be able to survive and hopefully thrive uh, with our engagement of the Russian people in the years to come. But there's other ways that the Kremlin is trying to shut down or limit the
0: range and scope of U.S. outreach, right? Since 2019, the Russians have legally laid the basis for the creation of a sovereign internet, uh, something that's colloquially called RUNET, to protect the country from what Russian authorities have called the aggressive nature of U.S. messaging. How far along is this project, do you think? And what's the practical impact for RFERL, but also for broader U.S. outreach to the Russian people?
1: Yeah, it's an important question. We've heard a lot from Kremlin officials about their goal of creating the sovereign internet, I think at various times. They've even announced that they ran tests, uh, showed that it could work in limited settings. And I think we should be worried about it because we have seen the Chinese Communist Party obviously pursue a a similar approach of trying to exert complete information dominance over their publics. But having said that, I think this is going to be a difficult path for the Kremlin to pursue, in part because the Russian people are used to being engaged with the internet, using even Western social media platforms. So yes, there are some homegrown alternatives, which we're also active on, but a lot of our Russian audience comes to us on platforms like YouTube, for instance. Now at the same time, they've been waging war on RFERL and other news organizations and civil society. They've also been targeting Western social media platforms, trying to find. Those platforms for not taking down content, which the Russian state finds objectionable, trying to place more conditions on those platforms, and at times threatening to shut down those platforms entirely. But if they were to try to take the entire Russian internet offline, essentially, remove the Russian people away from Western social media platforms, I do think there would be a broader domestic backlash. So that's just one thing I I think that the Russian state will have to be careful about. The other thing, which we've seen in a number of countries, our fear all operates in many markets where our websites are routinely blocked by government agencies. It's certainly the case in several Central Asian states in Iran. It's happened in Belarus over the last year after the protests in the wake of the fraudulent uh, re-election of Alexander Lukashenko. Even when states take such an extreme measure as directly blocking our websites. In this modern era, there are all kinds of tools that can be used both by content providers as well as the audience to circumvent those controls. Some of those are mirror sites, VPNs, and we've even seen this in China with uh, the so-called Chinese firewall. Ultimately, in the modern day and age, the digital era, preventing your citizens from accessing this sort of content and entirely preventing them is basically impossible. And so there are always ways that we can circumvent those controls and use other tools to reach out to that audience. And we have those tools ready and would certainly deploy them if we get to the point of the Russian authorities, for instance, blocking our website. The final thing which I do think deserves some policy debate in Washington and perhaps an area where the U.S. government can do more in collaboration with partners in Europe as well as the private sector. There is an even more concerning scenario, which I don't think we're anywhere close to right now in Russia, but we have seen governments like the Lukashenko regime deploy this over the last year around protests. We've seen it happen several times in Central Asian countries. And then you've also seen it repeatedly in recent years in Iran around major protests. Authoritarian regimes have been so desperate to prevent access to the outside world, that they will occasionally take the entire country's internet down, sometimes for days, sometimes in a few cases, I think in Iran it actually lasted maybe even a week or two. That's very concerning. That's, uh, and it requires a a different set of tools when an entire country has essentially removed themselves from the internet and limited access to the outside world. We've seen the Cubans even do this in recent uh, months Around protests. And I think there's been a lot of calls, for instance, in Congress for more work between the US government, between the private sector to deploy new solutions like satellite internet, for instance, in certain geographic areas. And I think that's an important place where there could be additional research and additional support to provide those tools to publics that are essentially under that sort of information uh, deprivation from their governments and to ensure the free flow of information between people in that country about what's going on on the ground, if there's a protest or a crackdown to the outside world, and then also news from outside being shared to those citizens. So I think we're prepared for the potential of a Russian internet. But I do think there's still a lot more can be done to make it more difficult for authoritarian regimes to weaponize the internet against their own citizens.
0: Well, and that leads me to my final question, uh, because you talked a lot about Russian strategy. You talked a lot about the view for Moscow in terms of the informational environment. So looking more broadly, where does media and the battle of ideas, so to speak, fit in in terms of Russia's overall worldview? What messages is Moscow trying to send to the world and to its own population and to the, Ruskimir, the Russian-speaking diasporas that live beyond its borders?
1: Yeah, I think that's an important question. I think the interesting thing looking at Russian information strategy and I think think if you we can learn from it and we should learn from it because a lot of our own debates I think about how we operate in this space, the way that the United States conveys its messages to the world, we fall into the trap far too often of thinking just about how we tell our own story to the world, how we explain American policy to the world. And that's incredibly important. I think it's honestly best done not by US funded media, but actually by the State Department itself, or by US diplomats and US administrations speaking officially. And I think there's a that's a long conversation about maybe changes that we could make to do that more effectively. But the Russians actually don't spend a lot of their time doing that sort of thing. The Chinese do with this a little bit from my experience of trying to present a certain image of China. But I think the Russians stopped doing that a long time ago. Their narrative actually is to tear down. They're not really building up much of a narrative. Uh, They want in the countries that I see where RFRL operates, they want to spread conspiracy theories. They want to undermine trust in democracy. They want to undermine confidence in America and in American objectives. Uh, we saw this just in recent weeks. Like I said, I was in Tbilisi last week uh, with our team there for our local Georgian service, Tavu Supleba. And there was an event, on an incident on July 5th, where journalists were covering a what was supposed to be a gay pride march, uh, which ended up getting canceled because of the fear of violence and the response as well from the Georgian uh, Orthodox Church. And uh, a mob of what apparently were Russian-backed individuals Ended uh, ended up attacking the journalists who had assembled to cover this. Law enforcement, unfortunately, essentially stood by, didn't intervene, didn't really help the journalists who were under attack. And meanwhile, Russia Today was there filming this live, streaming it. There were Russian propagandists back in Moscow streaming this melee on their websites. And the narrative that they were presenting is typical of what I see across the region, was both aimed at a Russian audience as well as then sent to Georgia and uh, manufactured there through Georgian outlets that, that might potentially you know, be some elements that are anti-Western, was look, this is the fruit of democracy. This is why you, the Russian people, do not need democracy. Look at the so-called democracy, Georgia. Look at the success of that democracy, where 53 journalists just got attacked in the streets and they are debating issues which Uh, social issues which uh, we do not agree with and which threaten Georgia's church and its traditions. That's the narrative that they were pushing on July 5th in Georgia, and they've been pushing since that event. Um, And we see this again and again in countries across the former Soviet Union. That more often than not is their narrative. It's tearing down, it's undermining, it's planting seeds of doubt in those publics. And that's why our role in each of those markets is so essential because we are there to provide factual, objective information. When narratives like that are are being put out, we can provide the context, the facts, highlight the alternative uh, viewpoint. And all of those things, by the way, the objectivity, the independence, the basic agreement of certain key facts, those are essential pieces and essential components of a democracy. And so if you don't have basic agreement on facts, you cannot have a functioning democracy. And so I think that's why the Russians have crafted these sorts of strategies and then started to deploy them so effectively, not just in parts of the former Soviet Union, but increasingly more and more in Western Europe and even in the United States. And so I think it's something we need to be very worried about, not just in the Russian context, but also then as the Chinese have watched those Russian tactics and their success in many areas as they then look to develop similar capabilities and deploy them in parts of the world where they want to advance their objectives.
0: Jamie, thank you so much for a tremendous conversation, for laying out for us the current difficulties that U.S. broadcasting is facing in Russia and the stakes that are involved in this.
1: Great. Thanks for having me, Alan.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Disinformation Wars. To learn more about the American Foreign Policy Council and our work on public diplomacy, visit us online at www.afpc.org. And as always, we hope you'll join us again next time.